Welcome to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Leaders who are innovating, building, and guiding organizations with a higher vision. How they put their values into practice to achieve the full potential of themselves and their organizations. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Welcome again, everyone, to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. And you've come to the podcast where we love to talk about reaching your soul's full potential and this concept of IntelliKey and not only meeting goals, but meeting potential, which is so much bigger, isn't it, Kirsten? So much bigger. Hello, everyone. So glad to be here for another episode. And I'm so excited with the guests that we have today. And really just on the heels of everything that's happening socially here in the United States and actually globally, it's a real honor. We have a human rights activist, scientist, teacher, supports environmental rights, social rights, human rights, and is also works in education. I'm going to introduce Dallas Gugel, and we're so glad to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm very happy and honored to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting with both of you about yes. the world. I think Dallas, I mean, I love in that introduction, look at all the roles that you get to play and all the faces that you get to show the world. Where do we begin? Human rights, environment. You talk to people all over. What are you picking up as far as what people are interested in? And what are you hearing about what is going on in our world? Yeah, I have been on a lot of different calls. Um, so I've introduced myself to a lot of different groups and a lot of different people. I'm Yankton, Dakota, assistant Wapton in bands and clans. I'm a father, an uncle, a son, a neighbor, a friend mischaracterized as Sioux for many years. We don't use that term anymore. That was a, a Western culture term. And grew up on the Fort Peck, Assiniboine, and Sioux Reservation. My grandparents are, uh, one, my grandfather was Dakota and my grandmother was Assiniboine. They speak a similar dialect. And uh, I worked for my tribe as an environmental scientist for a long time. And, and this is kind of how we introduce ourselves. We start with who we are. Fathers, sons, uncles, community members, neighbors, friends. Um, then we often name our tribe, band, clan. So I've introduced myself to Zoom groups in the past since March, actually. In that very same way, what I'm finding is I'm working with groups all over the world on exactly what you're doing here, is trying to find our own individual potential and how we can uh, manifest that both in real terms, in temporal terms, and, and also in metaphysical terms, or, uh, you know, because we are kind of at an existential place in our human evolution. I've been doing it around the world because I think it needs to be done at, on scale at this point, this kind of work. And so the, I've worked with groups, and, and one particular group right now, has, has folks from five, six different countries. I've participated in other Zoom meetings that have had a thousand people, I think, which is the limit for Zoom. And I'm working locally as well. And often we're meeting locally on Zoom. Currently, what we're doing in, in some local groups here is just doing community organizing for safety. There are targeted groups all around the U.S., that are being targeted by the far right with the expectation that there, there could be some violence. We're trying to keep our local 
people here in Boise, Idaho safe. I do feel like we're carrying forward a collective consciousness and, and more importantly for most, for many of us, and you don't have to be a person inside of a, a black body or a brown body, but most of us inside of black bodies or brown bodies are carrying also some collective trauma, some generational trauma. And what I'm interested in trying to do is liberate both all of us from our traumas. If you, have, if you are in a body in uh, white skin, you're going to have some trauma too and some guilt. Um, and so it's this liberation process that I think ultimately is kind of where I'm going. I'd love to hear more about that, what that means to liberate release, find some freedom or find some reconciliation. What, what does that sound and feel like for you? I just worked with a group here in Boise at the Wasmuth Human Rights Center, the Wasmuth Center for Human Rights. And, and we just wrote a paragraph, a three-sentence paragraph about what liberation looks like. And what that is, individuals with human sovereignty, independence, and a place where they can feel safe. And safety is a huge piece of that. Human dignity, practice of that looks like reparations. And we've had some, you know, a lot of talk about reparations, both for the country is built on a couple of very white supremacist ideologies. Um, one of them being slaves are not quite human. Um, and probably neither are the indigenous folks who lived here first because it's okay to commit genocide. We don't really need them. So there's an ethnic cleansing that this country was founded on. And then there was, uh, the, there was the idea that slaves are not quite human and, and they're more property. You know, there are some reparations that need to be done in that, in both of those categories. Not to mention, you know, Japanese Americans were put in internment camps. So we're all carrying this trauma in our bodies. And then you fold in a bigger crisis that's actually more imminent, which is the climate crisis. There's a lot of trauma around that, certainly for indigenous people around the world. If you look around the world and, and look and notice who is rising up to lead in, in reparations for the climate and for, for our mother, it's indigenous people, buyers in South America those movements that are trying to say this is this is not okay we can't be cutting down the rainforest um, those are led by indigenous folks fires in australia also again led by indigenous folks water protectors at standing rock some of my cousins in north and south dakota also led by an indi- by indigenous people as far as taking care of our mother so we're kind of getting off liberation piece let me close that out truth and reconciliation I think is a big piece of that, getting reparations, restorative justice. We need to do, we need to start looking at some restorative justice models. And I think that that will help us as two-leggeds to come together to kind of process some of this generational collective trauma that we're all carrying in our bodies. If I may, um, before we move into climate crisis, I have a couple questions for you around the conversation of reparation and restorative justice. So in some sectors, I know California is having a large discussion right now on reparation for the slaves, right? That's really on the table, quite controversial, but a necessary conversation and really almost far too late, but right on time. 
Um, but some of the metaphysical communities are saying things like the reparation is very similar to that of the people that actually did the injustice, right? So it's just the other side of the coin and it's not going to heal. And it doesn't, that's one of the arguments being presented as we're really starting to have real dialogue. Do you have any thoughts on that? I guess I would say that this all has to start with individuals. If we're ready and willing to do our own individual work, we can release trauma. Um, and we can release some of that, some of that pent up trauma that we're carrying. If we're not ready to, to go into our darkness, our, the own shadow within ourselves, they're probably right. There's not going to be any progress. It's going to be an intellectual exercise. And an intellectual exercise is not going to help release trauma. You actually have to get in there, dig deep. We have lots of technologies around trauma nowadays, but I think if you're actually doing reconciliation and you're using a restorative justice model and you're all in the same room and the oppressor is listening to the oppressed and vice versa, and you're willing to get in there and look at our shadows, I believe that that will release some of that trauma from our shadows. Because the idea isn't to divorce ourselves from our shadow side. That's part of who we are. The idea is to get to know it, welcome it, um, understand it, and understand when we're acting from that shadow side out of fear or insecurity. And so we can get to know it and recognize it so that we can change our behavior. That's really good. And you know, and I think about, as you were describing, there's certainly trauma on the oppressed. But you're also describing the trauma of the oppressors. And those are the people who may or may not be blocking these reparation discussions. But what is the, I guess, the benefit to the liberation of someone who is feeling the trauma of being the oppressor? When this idea came about, you know, years ago, one of the stumbling blocks, I guess, is like, my ancestors, I can't be responsible for what they did if they participated in genocide of Native Americans in North America. I, that's hard for me to be responsible for that. And that's true. But it built a system that is a racist system. And so the, the institutional and the systemic racism and, and white supremacy and white nationalism in the country comes out of that. And so as someone with white skin, you benefit from that institutional racism. And so what we want to do is understand, if you're willing to do the internal work, what is the harm that you have participated in by having white skin, which you have nothing, you can't do anything about that. What is the harm that you have caused for people with brown or black skin, just by virtue of having white skin, which is something you can't help. And then have someone with brown or black skin talk about what that harm feels like and what that means, you know, what that means to them. You've probably had other stories. You know, my grandfather was in a boarding school most Native American grandparents had, had went to the boarding school era. So you you have that exchange. The liberating quality is for is for both because the person with white skin that recognizes they have been participating in oppression just by virtue of the system that they're working in 
that can help liberate any of that institutional guilt. And then that moves them past offensiveness. And then their work on a daily basis is then to be anti-racist. Just like the patriarchy we live in, my work on a daily basis is to be anti-sexist. I have the privilege of not looking at gender issues. And so I don't have to look at the Me Too issues just because I have browns, just because I have, I'm in a male body. And so um, I have lots of sis good sister friends that are able to um, call me out when I act from a place of patriarchy and there's a blind spot that I have uh, about my male body and what privilege that gives me. And I'm also hopefully ready to do that internal work and not be defensive. I have found myself reacting defensively in those circumstances. So this isn't easy work. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. Because even as you're talking, there are moments. I mean, it is that white consciousness where I want to defend. I agree with you. I am responsible for my ancestors, right? And dismantling what has been set in place. I agree with you fundamentally on that. And anecdotally, I just recently learned a few years ago, my father's side came over on the Mayflower as a Puritan. And I almost passed out with guilt. But I do feel that defensiveness, right? I want to defend not all white people. But the truth is, there is a certain privilege that I get to experience, right? as being a white person in this country. You know, I recently drove through Memphis and I recently drove through parts of Atlanta and I was by myself, right? And sometimes I forget I'm white because of the work I do interculturally, right? And I really got present to the fact like these, the black people in our, you know, when I pulled up into a really different neighborhood in Memphis had no idea that I wanted to be for them or what my causes are, right? They didn't know that the work that I do, and it didn't matter because that trauma was in them. What do they see? They see a white woman pulling up in a Jeep Cherokee and they're very poor, right? But it does. I love that defensiveness you talk about because even the best of us, that's part of this affirming black voices that Mark and I talk about, right? As white people, it is deep work mm -hmm. looking at yourself at that level. Yeah, yeah, it is. And Dallas, because it's inside out work, and you say, you know, we need to get in there. Do you feel that our natural core is one of wanting to forgive, is one of wanting to release uh, and reconcile, and we just need to get the other step out of the way? Or when you say we need to dig deep, what are we digging for? I mean, I think what we're digging for is that dark side within each of us, you know, and, and how that manifests itself on a daily basis. You know, if, if I'm trying to get my way, I happen to know that I do two or three things. I can, I can be a bully and I can, my behavior can become very condescending if I'm, it, it looks like I'm not going to get my way. Um, if I'm in more uh, intimate relationships, maybe with family, I can pout to try to get my way recognizing those, those have their place. It understands that I'm, I have unmet needs. I want my needs met and I'm going to manipulate to get those needs met as opposed to, you know, kind of negotiating and, and being more adult about getting my needs met. And so those are the things that we're looking at, getting in and taking a look at those. And if we have blind spots to our skin color and the privilege and the advantages and the doors that open because of that, 
um, we have to get in there and look at those too. And that's what we're talking about. I routinely get followed around in Bloomingdale's or wherever I might happen to be in, in a store. My white friends don't get followed around. That just points out their privilege. Now those are minor things. But in a boardroom, in a meeting, are you giving space if you have white skin to have a, the voice of a dark-skinned person talk? I consciously try to not talk as much because I'm in a male body. And I try to hold space for female bodies to, to speak and have their voices heard. And that's what this starts to look like. And it is individual work. And like I said, we talked about it being on scale. I used to do this in, in, with groups of 20, 30, sometimes you know, an auditorium of 300 people. But we have to do it a thousand at a time now, just because we don't have enough time. Because when we think of the other thing that's looming, we do this individual work, we start releasing our trauma, and then we start behaving in relationship in a much more compassionate and open way. And then in those relationships, that's the next thing. It's like, then I can be in a relationship with other people, but we have to do that on scale. Because where this all went wrong is we get removing ourselves from the earth. And at some point, we began disrespecting the earth. And, and once that disrespect for the earth became more real and we were less earth-based and we had the industrial revolution, it wasn't a huge leap to then start disrespecting one another as two-leggeds. We'd already propped ourselves up on chairs. We'd already been, had removed ourselves from the earth. So we've created this relationship that is, is self-destructive. Essentially, in my culture, we, you know, we feel like the earth is our mother. It's our grandmother. It sustains us. And any child who turns on their mother is going to be hugely conflicted and hugely confused. So as a species, in the evolution of humans, as a species, we're in a very conflicted place, and there is that trauma. And so we've turned on our mother. She still loves us, and she's willing you know, to give us some lessons, but not at the expense of her own life. And so this is where we are with the climate crisis. And I've been a human rights activist for 45, 40 years, but it, it does go back to that for me, and I think even more urgent look at reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, take, it, take it up a little bit, yeah. You have described a very interesting dynamic I'd like you to speak more to, if you would, and that is this personal connection to the earth. You know, sometimes we think of climate change in these very lofty seismic shifts, but you're going right down to, you, you caught my ear with this, and then we lifted ourselves into chairs. And it took me a minute to realize that you're saying we disconnected from the earth, literally and personally. I would love yeah. to hear more about that from, from your point of view. When we began disconnecting ourselves from the earth, there is a natural law, and we, real, we, we thought that we were above this natural law that the earth has. And, and there's a process. Everything has, uh, everything's interconnected. And when we thought that we could man manage or manipulate the web, that we were the spider and we could manage this web, we began to, to lose respect. And so what happens is we're very biocentric. We thought we were, we thought we had dominion over all of the, the natural world. 
And it, it turns out we don't. It turns out we are just as subject to natural law and the, the laws of the natural world as something with roots or something with wings, something with fins, something that creeps and crawls, something that has four legs. We're just as vulnerable to those natural laws as all of these other creatures who are essentially our brothers and sisters. Because we've removed ourselves, we started doing things out of convenience. And so our food comes from three, 400 miles away and it's packaged. You know, our power is centralized. All of these things that centralize everything and how we live is a big piece of why we have the problems that we have with climate change and fires and floods and earthquakes and tsunamis at, at this point. So we do need to get back to the earth. We need to be, it'll help us as individuals because we'll have relationship with one another, community gardens, our food comes from the, the local community farm. It's not trucked 300 miles. And those are the kind of things that we need to, to kind of get back to and get closer to the earth. So Dallas, I have a couple questions for you. First of all, what are a few actionable areas, items, things they can do that will have immediate effect? At least get people thinking, I can do this. Secondly, I have a lot of younger clients and they suffer from heavy, heavy anxiety because of the mess we're leaving to them. They are responsible for what we are leaving behind and it's eminent in their eyes what do you offer to them to your point we don't have time so we have to nurture them quickly to rise into their fullest potential mm -hmm. that opens up another piece of the puzzle which is predatory capitalism and <laughs> i mean we could go on and on and on about that for a long time instant gratification advertising you know all of those things but i think that a couple of easy and hopefully doable, actionable items is to pick two things that you can do. Um, one in relationship and one in category of sustainability. And so pick an item that maybe you, you go to the farmer's market on, you know, on a Saturday or, or twice a month so that you're not going to the grocery store, you're getting your food locally and just pick that one. That's a sustainability one. Not everybody has a plot of land that they can plant a garden in, but you know, uh, maybe some herbs in a window box. But just kind of think about sustainability and how we can you know, just reduce the number of trips in our car, use public transportation. You know, I've done a lot of work back east in DC. I love riding the metro. You can go anywhere, you can do anything you want. <laughs> Ride the butt, you know, use public transportation just a few times a month because then you can feel good about knowing that you're doing something sustainable. In this time of divisiveness, you know, I've been talking with people and just sadly many neighborhoods are pretty homogeneous. And when we're talking about race, it's been pretty strategic to keep neighborhoods homogeneous in many ways. Mm -hmm. So be a little be a little risky and, and step a, a little ways outside your neighborhood. In some ways, I want to ask some of my Republican friends, it's like, are you going to protect me if I'm on a somewhere that the far right has? Are, are you going to let them shoot me? I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, that's where we're at, is try to get back into community. And I'm not, I'm guilty of not doing that. I know 
some of my neighbors, I could know a lot more of my neighbors. I could be knocking on some doors. We're not that different as humans. And so it's that relationship building. And so those are the two things that I would suggest is pick a couple of things that are, that are in the sustainability category and build a few new relationships. And Dallas, it sounds like, I mean, certainly the topics are more timely than ever. I mean, we, we've hit on several now. Do you feel like that the universe, the people, the spirit is also ready to address the topics? In other words, have the, have the topics come to us because we're prepared to address them? I mean, I think that that's a piece of it. I think the zeitgeist, the spirit of the day is there are people in the streets and have been for six to eight months who are processing their generational collective trauma. And it is okay now to speak openly about racism, white supremacy, white nationalism. As someone said that in another podcast I heard, and I can't credit that person because I can't remember, but something is dying. And the thing that's dying is the denial of what, where we are. And so the zeitgeist is bringing us forward into not being able to deny and and push some of these things under the rug. And it's very evident. And it's not just in the U.S. We have Mm -hmm. have statues, uh, slave trade statues coming down in Bristol. There's all kinds of things happening all over the world. So, yes, there's a cosmic energy that is out there. So if I may, you know, many of the spiritual leaders around the world, not just in the U.S., are speaking of this new earth that's getting created. And there was fear from the spiritual leaders that that would actually be able to happen. But now there's actually hope. The dismantling, frightening as it seems, is really to our benefit, right? Because it's all in front of us. And Queros really did come off their mountain to train the Westerners, the white folk, the the people in the U.S., because they believed it was time Mm -hmm. that we actually learned the medicine so we can support the ascension and the movement and the bringing forward of the new earth, right? When I received my sacred rites from the Queros, they were really clear. They had never left their mountain. They were from the Incas but they needed us to have the medicine so we could begin the healing and facilitate. I mean, do you agree that dismantling really is positive if you embrace it for the right reason? I I think that I'm in that category of, we kind of have to burn it down in order to rebuild it. Um, And I, so I do, I do agree with that. Now I, that doesn't sound very gentle and it, it sounds like, uh, that sounds like there's a lot of chaos. But I bring prophecies forward from my tribes that we are in that time of chaos. Now, if you can imagine moving from the ice world to the water world, we've all seen glaciers fall into the ocean in the, the Arctic. That was a huge amount of chaos, moving from the ice world to the water world. We're moving from a world of separation into a new world of illumination. We just are, and that's where we're at. And there's not just my tribe. There's prophecies in South America that will tell you the same thing. We're in chaos in that transition to the new world. And yeah, it's, we're gonna have to, there's going to have to be a huge amount of things that are going to have to be torn down before we can start rebuilding. None of this is a surprise to us, really. 
Yeah, I'm mindful of our time with you, Dallas, and I really appreciate the conversation. And we've raised so many good points. Uh, where can people continue to follow and interact and learn about uh, the programs that you're doing? Well, I'm working with the Wasmuth Center right now. I'm also working with another group who are who are doing essentially this in Teleki. That group isn't called this. Um, you know, I don't have I don't have a website. I'm just doing my thing, and you can direct them to to Kirsten, and she can help them find me. That's exactly um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and look, we know where to find you because we see you all over town. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and, and we're so glad that you've been able to think about this global impact. You know, you're right. Being being in a room of twenty or thirty people is a lot different than doing a Zoom meeting with a thousand. Or you know, we certainly don't have ten thousand listeners of our podcast, but it does help ripple the message out. We've just been so glad to have you on the program to share these insights with us. I'm happy to be here. It was great. It was a good conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Dallas to close because Dallas has been known to say, walk lightly upon this earth. Remember to walk lightly upon this earth. Perfect perfect way to sum up. I love the fact that you gave us some very actionable steps. Kirsten knows I I love the what do I do now (laughs) prescription. Thanks again, Dallas. Really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our websites, www.pureintellikey.com and www.mark-stenson.com. IntelliKey Leadership Stories is copyright 2020. Thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories.